Welcome to Hidden Gems Toronto, the podcast that introduces you to a variety of fascinating people and places that fly under the radar but are a vital part of our city's fabric. I'm your host, urban geographer Tom Scanlon, and I invite you to don your virtual hiking boots and join us as we track down these compelling stories. A recent study of book sales in England revealed that crime novels are now the number one genre, surpassing general and literary fiction. To fans of the numerous crime shows on TV, this comes as no surprise. With so much attention being paid to crime, it is difficult to create something that is both new and interesting. But two retired Toronto police detectives, Phil Hiblin and Bob Moyna, are about to embark on a venture that checks both boxes. Their Toronto Crime Walking Tour takes you to a variety of locations where notorious crimes have been committed. At each spot, they provide a unique perspective on how the investigation was handled. As you are about to hear, they bring a refreshing attitude and valuable insight into the world of criminal investigations. Hello, Phil, and welcome to the podcast. Tom, good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to hearing about this exciting new venture. In the introduction, Phil, I mentioned how people have a never-ending fascination with crime movies and TV shows. From your perch as a detective, why do you think this is so? I think it really goes back to the whodunit situation. Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, basically how to catch a bad guy. The formula I always find is present the scenario, give enough clues and twists of a plot and this kind of thing, and, and people try to figure that out. At the very end, they get, they get a prize, basically. Ah, so it's very old school in a way. Oh, yeah, totally. It's old school. And as you see, proliferation of police shows, crime shows, this kind of thing, that never goes out of style. The murder mysteries, it never goes out of style. It will always be there because it always touches their fascination with solving the problem. And when you watch shows like Law & Order, Phil... Do you cringe at how detectives are portrayed? Oh, boy. Well, one of the things I find, okay, first of all, and I get it why they have it. Okay, it's a one-hour episode. They have to cram in a whole lot of stuff in one hour. So let's say uh, Law & Order, for example. Everybody loves that. It's been on for years and years, different segments, different you know facets of it, crimes, investigations, etc. You have them trying to figure out the crime. I don't see anybody ever laughing during investigation, I don't see any sense of humor. Everyone's always so serious. And then they have the music that goes behind it. The gugung, gugung. And of course, that feeds into it and catches people's attention. And at the end, the criminal is caught and sentenced. There might be a little bit of reality based on it. But again, we're trying to get viewers, right? So there's a lot of stuff that they gloss over. On a personal level, Phil, when you introduce yourself to someone as a police detective... What's the first question people tend to ask you? I mean, do they kind of freeze up or ask you how to get off paying a parking ticket? Well, let's say normally the people I meet that I've never met before would be at uh, social functions or parties or whatnot. And first question usually is, what's it like to be a cop? Uh, Detective, do you have any interesting stories? And then they, of course, turn into, I have had a situation with a police officer, whatever, traffic stop, and I'm constantly educating people on how things work in the law enforcement. This sounds a bit like a doctor at a party when everyone wants to ask them, tell them about their ailment. 
Oh, absolutely. And the funny thing is, is that they usually say, can you give me an example of some good stories or good situations you've been involved in? And that's where I just go blank because in the 30 years I've been policing, I get involved in something, I go home, I tell my wife, Nancy, this is what happened today. Then I forget about it. It's gone. She remembers everything. And she's an articulate storyteller. So she ends up telling the story and people are listening to her saying, wow, wow. I even get pulled into it saying, and then what happened? Then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned, Phil, 30 years. I'm thinking back, like when you were a kid, when I was a kid, I was dreaming of maybe being a hockey player. But were you envisioning yourself in a different kind of a uniform? I have always wanted to be a police officer for years. I uh, started when I was like eight years old. I've always dreamed of being a police officer. And uh, the basic idea was, helping out the victim and catching the bad guy. That was my core value. And through policing, that's always been my fundamental core value. You know, helping out the victim and getting the, getting the bad person. That, that's intriguing at such a young age. You already had that in mind. And, and Phil, when you look back on your career, can you walk us through like how you started and how you moved up to become uh, a detective? Well, it's uh, usually, and uh, again, all places follow the same pattern. You start, uh, you have to get your experience on the street, answering calls, dealing with people, problem solving, problem solving 101. That's a basic. So by that, you develop experience, you get into certain offices, certain squad work, and because policing is obviously a uh, highly multifaceted type of organization, and you deal with certain situations. So when you have enough time on your belt, uh, you go for a promotional process and you evaluate it on your history, your skill set, how you deal with situations. So you have to take the examination, which is a whole bunch of multiple choice questions. And we call it the SIV. Like basically, it takes a whole bunch of candidates and you can't promote everybody. That's just the reality. And you get it to a pool of so many people and they go in front of a police board of uh, senior officers and they basically throw questions at you, all risk management based. Because one thing we know, policing, it's a very risk management type of situation. You get involved in things and you have to deal with it properly, obviously. They want to see how you're going to react to situations and discipline of officers to dealing with things that are, are very topical, things that have happened, mistakes that have made. How would you as a sergeant deal with this situation? And they want to see how you handle it. They want to know that they could put you in charge of a situation comfortably that you deal with it. And that's a primary, primary thing. Wow. I, I mean, you, you got to be proud of your career, Phil. And, but now you're retired. And I'm thinking, what do you miss most about being on the forest? Number one, the people. The people. It's, it's that simple. I tend to laugh a lot through my career. I have a wicked sense of humor and I have a loud voice, a loud laughter. And I've been told that several times. I've been cautioned about that, actually. I won't get into that. But yeah, the humor element, how people, you know, cops relate to each other. It's the same type of work. So we understand each other. I miss the detective thing, you know, solving cases, getting involved, uh, the digging. Yeah, the thrill of it and the excitement and yeah, the hunt. I miss all that stuff. It's all, it's all good stuff. I guess, obviously, follow up. What, what part of policing don't you miss? Okay, well. The paperwork <laughs> goes back to the, uh, the crime stories where, hey, don't they have like for every action, there's paperwork that you have to submit. Paperwork, shift work. At the end of it, I couldn't stand shift work because, again, it affects the family. The family goes to things, events that are invited to, and I can't go because I work in midnight shift. And with midnight shifts, you know, you're there, but you're not there. You know, you're not tuned in because you're so tired. You're in court all day and, and you're working midnight shift and that drags on. Working afternoons, working weekends. Policing is not the only profession. The, the doctors, 
the nurses, the firefighters, the ambulance, you know, we're all in that category. But that I do not miss that one, one iota. I'm surprised a bit, Phil, because I thought you were going to say uh, there's a lot of gruesome parts of detective work. You see some terrible things, and yet you seem to have this positive attitude and that when you talk about things you miss, you didn't mention that. Well, that's a good point. A very good point you raised. What you tend to do as a police officer, again, as any emergency services personnel, you come to a scene, you deal with victims, and victims are going to hurt, and they're going to show that. So you get used to looking at it from a forensic professional way. Okay, so I have my victim here. I have my situation here, my scene here. You make your notes, whatever. And and you have to detach yourself from the emotional aspect of it. Yes, you feel for them, obviously, but you have a job to do. And so what you do is you ask questions, you deal with them, and you're trying to get enough information so that you can get the bad guy or, or, or type up a search warrant or continue investigation or whatever it is. Definitely detachment is a key factor. So you had a great career. It's time for you to maybe lower that golf score, Phil, or head down to Florida, watch your Blue Jays. But no, you totally ignore the stereotypical retirement life and you start this new venture. I mean, what the heck happened to your plan? Well, I suffer from the can't sit still syndrome. (laughs) I think I have a little, you know, ADHD or whatever you want to call it, but I, I still get up at six or seven in the morning. I do my thing. I putz around. I cannot sit still. I tried golfing and a couple of my buddies, they are good golfers. They play a lot. I can play nine holes and then I get bored. I would rather bicycle ride. I want, wanted to get into ventures and I did not want my brain to turn off. I wanted to get involved in a new type of venture. So aside from this, this crime tours adventure, which I'm so excited about, sure. I also have another side business that I started as well. And that allows me to you know keep busy. I understand that completely. I shared that with you, Phil. And now you have a partner, I hate to say partner in crime, but I couldn't resist, that's working with you on this tour. And have you guys been buds like forever or or did you work together on cases? Yeah, well, Bob and I started at the same, basically at the same time, he had a little bit more time than I did. 30 plus years ago at the same division, we worked together. And like anything, he went off one way, I went off another way. I did a lot of squad work and he did his investigative case, investigative offices. Then fast forward, we met later on And it was at my retirement party that he approached me because he has the same type of personality, temperament, and humor that I do. And so he said, Phil, I have a business opportunity for you. When he first mentioned Toronto Crime Tours, I thought, hmm, interesting. This sounds like very intriguing. I enjoy getting up, presenting in front of people. I, I did a bit of teaching at one of the colleges, and I would like to sit there and talk to people about policing and like to see the excitement in their face and they ask questions, you know, standard stuff. And I thought, yes, this is something I can see myself doing, doing a walking tour, talking to people and showing the enthusiasm that I've always had towards policing. So, so Phil, you didn't even get out of your retirement party before you moved on to a, another job. And I'm, Absolutely I'm, not. I'm wondering, were there cases that in your career that, I don't know if you worked on any of the cases that would be part of the tour, or did you work on cases that at least were similar in nature? Well, there's one particular part of the tour that I was the lead investigator on. It's one of the stops in the tour. It involves a stabbing rampage on on Carlton Street. It happened in 2015. And as a matter of fact, I was interviewed by uh, the media on the scene there. And so that's one of the the tour stops that we promote. So you got 15 stops. When you and Bob got together, you want to start this new venture. What was your criteria for choosing which crime scenes to highlight? Because you had a lot of choices. 
Yeah, well, we do. And what we try to do, and, and Bob emphasized this, and Bob and I, basically, we are on the same track for a lot of this. We have the same ideas. We didn't want a tour where we had 15 stops where it was, okay, this murder happened here, this murder happened here, this murder happened here. That gets boring. What we wanted was a stop that had the political, the social, and policing significance. So something happened here, something went wrong, and because of whatever, it was changed. It changed the way policing acted or policing changed, society changed. So everything had its own significant aspect on the tour. You know, you know, Phil, when you uh, first mentioned to me about this tour, I remember you were very careful to point out that the tours are not meant to sensationalize tragic events, but you saw this as an educational tour. I, I think that's a real unique angle. Maybe you could talk about that a bit. Absolutely. It, it's not meant to sensationalize anything. It's, it's meant to educate people because people naturally have questions. Okay, this is what happened in this particular situation. And then this is what went wrong. And this is how we tried to make it right. We made it right because we feel we are Toronto Goodwill Ambassadors. And mm-hmm. Toronto is a safe, a great city. And, but we want to promote things that have made it great in the long run. Again, we've all had our issues. We've made mistakes. I know everybody has, but this is how we learn from our mistakes. And, and the tour, I believe, emphasizes that in a positive way. Can you give us an example of one specific crime where mistakes were made in the investigation, but you learned from those mistakes and now detectives are doing things differently? There's one that I was affected by because I, I worked sex crimes for a couple of years. And there's one, the, the balcony rapist in 1986, a Paul Callow, second story balcony rapist. Police made mistakes in that. And because of the tenacity of the, the victim, Jane Doe, things changed. The way sexual assault investigations changed. And so when I worked at sex crimes, there were procedural changes, things that we had to check off, things that we had to do because it was demanded by her tenacity and by the court system. And it, it, it changed the way we investigated sexual assaults at the time. On the tour, Phil, are there many crimes that people will be familiar with? Right. For example, there'll be Bruce MacArthur. The start off is Emmanuel Jacques. So there are uh, a few that people will remember. I know that with Emmanuel, I think you mentioned that that really hit home. A lot of people have the same reaction to that. And, and we discussed that. Again, things happen in the past and things happen as a result of that horrific murder. Yes, I was living downtown at that time. I remember one journalist wrote that Toronto lost its innocence with the shoeshine boy murder. That's always stuck with me. You're dealing with some pretty tough stuff on this tour, Phil. You know, we are. We are. And it's, it is tough stuff. Bob and I bring to the table, or I think we bring to the table, a, a sense of, not, I don't want to say humor, but we have our own style of, of speaking. I myself have my own style of dealing with certain people in certain situations. I used to be a complaints investigator. So I think I know how to reach out to people. And yes, it is tough stuff. But again, we talk it through. And I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that people will walk away from this tour and each stop with a, interesting, I learned something new. I learned something new. And Toronto is a good place. And these guys know what they're talking about. And they're fun to be with. Yeah. And you know, this is a good lead in for me, Phil. Some of the criminal cases go back many decades. But one that caught my eye is, is from the 1930s. And it involved a notorious bank robber known as Norman the Red Ryan. Now, this case, it has all the hallmarks of a Hollywood caper. We asked your partner, Bob, if he could give us an overview of what we might hear at this particular stop on the tour. Have a listen.
So here we are at the corner of Palmerston and Dundas in the west end of Toronto and in a house just up the street here in Palmerston is where a young hooligan grew up to be known as the Jesse James of Canada. Norman Red Ryan, who was so named for his copper hair, grew up on a, a house just up the street here on Palmerston Avenue. Known for safe cracking and bank robberies, he amassed 19 convictions and was given life imprisonment in 1923. Although he had an earlier escape from Kingston Penn, upon return to prison, he repented. He then began to live the life of a model prisoner and became a poster child for the newly emerging prison reform movement in Canada. This was a large-scale movement to change the parole system, and it was being embraced by several major newspapers and major politicians. In fact, none other than Prime Minister R.B. Bennett visited Ryan in his cell. This led to Ryan's release from prison in 1935. He was given what's known as a ticket of leave. He had served 11 years of his life sentence. This was major news in Toronto across the media, all touting him as a celebrity ex-convict. He even became a radio host on CFRB, where he denounced his criminal past. He was photographed regularly with city officials at public events, and he worked as a used car salesman. Red Ryan, though, had not changed his ways, and he was living a double life. Three months after being released from Kingston Penn, Ryan had joined up with some of his past criminal friends and went on a 10-month robbery spree. During an overnight attempt to steal a car in Markham, the gang shot and killed the homeowner who was trying to stop them. The police had to stop the chase after the gang fired more than 50 rounds at the pursuing police car. Ryan was back to work the next day denouncing the crime on his radio show, and he offered to go undercover to help the police crack the case. His gang did three more bank robberies. In May 1936, Ryan and an accomplice robbed a liquor store in Sarnia. There was a terrible shootout. Both the bad guys were killed, and sadly, a Sarnia police officer was killed in the shootout. And that was the first line of duty death in Sarnia police history. There was fallout, of course. Ryan was denied a Catholic burial, and now former Prime Minister Bennett said he felt keenly let down. The prison reform movement was turned on its ear. An official stated, the case of Norman Ryan put back the progress of parole in Canada by 15 years. That one spectacular case did more against the system than the proven record of thousands of men has done for it. Bob, that is an amazing story. A CFRB radio host, a friend of the prime minister, that is quite a tale. This guy had everybody duped. And his whole thing is he just wanted to get a president and go back to robbing banks. And so I guess he realized early on the way to get out of prison is to denounce my past and, and start going to church and help the younger convicts to turn their life around. That that was his ticket. It was actually called the ticket of Lee back in the day. Do you think also, Bob, like there's always been a begrudging respect and almost affection, I think, for bank robbers. And like you think of Bonnie and Clyde, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. But as you point out, this seemingly likable robber killed a police officer and set back the progress on parole. You said 15 years. I mean, that meant thousands of prisoners were denied parole. That's significant. Exactly. Exactly. And one of the uh, tour stops on our downtown tour is uh, the story of uh, the Boyd gang, Edwin Alonzo Boyd. And they were very much romanticized by the media because they're in circulation wars. And it kind of overlooked the fact that two of his cohorts shot and killed a police officer who recognized them as escaped bank robbers because they'd escaped from the Don jail. So yeah, the media can be a bit funny sometimes. They sort of want this sensational angle, but you're romanticizing some really serious criminals. You know, makes me think, is, is, is there a stop 
on the tour that sort of stands out to you as a different kind of example. It's somewhere where investigators tried something new and that strategy led to some positive changes to the justice system as opposed to what happened here with Big Red. Yeah, it's funny, it's funny that you mentioned that because as you were speaking out that question, I said, oh yeah, I got a couple of real doozies where the police unfortunately just really blundered it. But having said that, in the West tour, we stopped in front of Toronto Western Hospital and we talked about the hospital for sick children uh, story of uh, nurse Susan Nellis. There was an interesting play came out in how that investigation was proceeding. And on the advice of uh, a family member, nurse Susan Nellis lawyered up is the term that we, we, we use nowadays. And the cops thought that was a negative and they used that to form their basis for, we're going to lay charges and you shouldn't really do that. They've got a right to a lawyer. That's not an indicator of guilt. When I think about all these different stops you've got, you had to do a lot of research. Yes. Tell us about that. Like, how did you go about doing the research on these crimes? Well, I'm not being boastful here, but I, I know the city fairly well because I've worked pretty much all across the city. I was in the transit patrol unit and I had the run of the entire city. And then when I was promoted for my first year, I was a traffic supervisor and I again had the run of the city. So I know the city fairly well. And I guess Phil and I are both kind of, I wouldn't say like amateur historians, but we both have a real passion for significant events in the city and things that have made the city better from and a horrific event. And, we, and our downtown tour starts with the Emmanuel Jack Shushine Boy murder, which was absolutely horrific. It was the breaking point of enough is enough. Downtown Toronto is just decrepit and full of sex shops, and it has to change starting now. And it did. And then a more modern example would be the Bruce MacArthur case, where I don't want to get into mistakes were made, but there was a denial that there was a serial killer. And lo and behold, he was responsible for eight murders, and that qualifies him as a serial killer. But one of the good things that came out of that is Toronto Police formed the Missing Persons Unit, and it is a subunit of the Homicide Squad. So the rationale or the uh, conclusion you can draw there is that hopefully uh, we won't have a serial killer preying right under our nose in the future. That's very insightful, Bob. I really appreciate that you told us the Red Ryan story because it gives our listeners a sample of the kinds of things that they'll learn on the tour. So thanks for doing that. My pleasure. Getting back to you, Phil, you seem like a very upbeat person. And I would think that after a long career in fighting crime, you'd like to get away from that world. Yet you seem very willing to jump right in the deep end. How do you keep a healthy, positive attitude while spending so much time talking about some pretty tragic events? You know, that's a good point because, again, I go back to the sense of humor. I don't take things personally. I know that what Bob and I are trying to accomplish here is to enlighten people, talk about Toronto being a safe city. We consider ourselves goodwill ambassadors. And with that tag that we, we decided to put on, it helps us to reach out to people and, you know, with a smile on our face and say, yes, this is the stuff we're talking about. It's a walking tour. It's outdoors. We get to meet new people and they, they get to see us for who we are. And that's the positive thing. And I, I always like meeting new people. I always like making people laugh. And that's what makes me, it keeps me an upbeat kind of person. You're, you're in your element on this one, Phil. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering, I mean, I know it's, it, you're in the planning stages, but, and I understand in the long term, you're hoping to have three different tours, but so where are we at? When do you expect to be up and running? Can you just give us the logistics of where we're at? Originally, we had, thanks to COVID, we had hoped to start last year, but obviously everybody is in that boat. Our launch date for this one is June the 10th. 
And so we have our website and we hopefully at that time we'll be able to push a button and we'll be able to launch. And the main tour is downtown core. And as I think you mentioned, we have a West end and an East end tour that's ready to go as well. But our primary tour right now is the downtown core. Who do you think is going to come in on this tour? Is, are we looking at Torontonians or do you think it's going to be attracting tourists? That's a good question. It's going to be very interesting when we first start because what you just said, who will we attract? You know, will we attract people from outside of Toronto? Will we attract people who's visiting from out, outside of Canada? We don't know. And, and that's going to be very interesting to see exactly who will we attract to this tour. I, I don't think we're going to attract anybody from law enforcement. That's a given because that's what they do. So somebody from outside of Toronto, hopefully some Torontonians, they want to know more about their own city. So it's going to be very interesting to, to see the result of that. You said no one from law enforcement, but it makes me want to ask, what do your police buddies think about what you're doing here? It's uh, interesting, Phil. That sounds very interesting. Good for you for the new endeavor you're, you're pursuing, whatever, whatever. Is Go get them, man. Is, hey, go get them. <laughs> I'll give you my take, Phil. I think this tour is going to be a roaring success. I love your attitude, your positive view of it. You're enthusiastic. And, and I think this educational as opposed to sensational angle is, is really significant. And I think it's going to be a contribution to Toronto. So we'll put your, your information on our site. And I'm telling you, I will be one of the first to buy a ticket. Well, I expect that. I expect that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, listen, such a joy talking to you. So thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. Tom, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. To find out more about the Crime Scene Tour and to order tickets, you can go to torontocrimetours.com. You can also go to our website at hiddengemstoronto.net and you'll find a link to their site. I want to take a minute to thank everyone who contacted us after our initial podcast. We were overwhelmed with all the positive feedback and suggestions. And a special thank you to those that went on the Apple Podcast site to rate our show. With the exception of a close relative who was so excited to rate us, she hit one instead of five, the vast majority gave us five stars and that really helps attract new listeners. So a heartfelt thanks to you all. On our next podcast, you will meet Charlene Beard, whose according playing father decided in 1957 to teach music lessons out of his basement. Since that opening, more than 10,000 students have learned to play a musical instrument at the Leopard Music Center. Charlene, who now presides over the business, talks to us about the little music school that grew. You can hear our lively discussion on August 1st. Until then, I'm your host, Tom Scanlon. Thanks for listening.